You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Lise Grande. I'm the head of the United States Institute of Peace. Congress established us in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. We're delighted to welcome everyone today to a celebration of the second anniversary of the Indo-Pacific Strategy. Launched two years ago, this strategy is one of the most important in U.S. foreign policy. The strategy commits the United States to work alongside our allies and partners toward an Indo-Pacific that is free and open, connected, prosperous, secure, and resilient. We have a number of senior distinguished representatives from our allies and partners. Please allow us to pay our respects to you and to welcome you most warmly. It's an honor to hold this event in collaboration with the Department of State and a privilege to welcome Special Assistant to the President and National Security Council Senior Director for East Asia and Oceania, Dr. Mira Rapp Hooper. To welcome also Assistant Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs, Donald Liu. To welcome the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs, Dr. Ely Ratner, and also the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and Pacific Affairs, Camille Dawson. The Indo-Pacific strategy is important in so many ways. It embraces the recognition that the United States is an Indo-Pacific power. If implemented successfully, the strategy will help to ensure the continued vibrancy, security, and resilience of the Indo-Pacific region, home, to over half of the world's population and which drives two-thirds of global economic growth. The strategy pledges to support regional connectivity, to support trade and investment, and to deepen bilateral and multilateral cooperation. Most importantly, it recognizes the centrality of the allies, friends, and partners who are working together to strengthen the collective capacity of the Indo-Pacific to respond to both threats and opportunities in the coming decades. Once again, it's a pleasure to welcome all of our guests today to discuss the diplomatic and the economic milestones that have been achieved because of this strategy in the past two years and to look forward to the years ahead. I'm very pleased now to hand over to Senior Advisor with the Asia Center, Vikram Singh, who's gonna be moderating the panel discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lise, and thank you all for joining us. This is a terrific crowd, and I particularly want to thank members of the Diplomatic Corps who are here with us today. It's really a delight to see all of you in person, and a really warm welcome to our panelists. Um, I'm not going to do extensive introductions. We are going to cover a strategy that is uh, America's approach to, um, you know, the bulk of the world's population and economy and do it in a little about an hour plus with some time for questions and answers. So, um, you know, just to you all know, to my immediate right is Mira Rapp Hooper, 
uh, Deputy Assistant President. She's Senior Director for East Asia, Assistant Secretary for South and Central Asia, Don Liu, who has served throughout the region with distinction and is a great friend and partner. Deputy Assistant Secretary Camille Dawson, um, who I actually listened to give a nice exposition on uh, the two-year anniversary of the strategy. And Dr. Eli Ratnair, my old friend and, uh, and, and colleague, um, who has been really spearheading a, a reorientation of how we approach the region from a defense perspective, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs. So um, welcome to all of you. Um, the way this is basically going to run is I'm going to give everybody a few minutes to talk about their part. So for Mira, it's everything. And then as you, uh, <laughs> and then as we move down, you've got um, different parts. For Eli, it's kind of everything too. Um, but you know, we're 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 running from India all the way to New Zealand um, with this strategy. Uh, the strategy is a toddler. It's two years old. It is not. Um, it, it's not just out of the gate, and it has achieved some remarkable things in these two years. We are seeing investments made in resilience and economic growth that we have that are relatively unparalleled. Really recently, we saw the DFC making big loan guarantees for a port in Sri Lanka and an energy project in India. We are seeing um, a, a reorientation of our military capabilities to focus on the Indo-Pacific as the primary theater uh, and the area where we need to focus most of our attention. Huge innovations with allies and partners like AUKUS. Huge new ways to do uh, cooperation uh, in minilateral ways like the Quad. Uh, which is Australia, Japan, India, uh, and the United States. And, uh, and across the five pillars of this strategy, you can see really landmark progress. And it's very exciting as somebody who's worked Asia for years to have all of you here and to, like, and to hear from you how it's going and where the challenges are. And so we're essentially going to proceed down the line. And uh, you have a few minutes. And I'm going to try to get it a little spicy at some point, you know, see if we can, see if we can elicit some of the interagency debates that I'm sure you've worked out entirely by now and have full agreement on. But we'll try to do that. But so Mira, let me start with you and just give us the big picture from the White House where we were, where we're going, what some of the big successes are, and how you see things shaping up. Thanks so much, Vikram. Um, and before I jump in, thank you so much to Lise, to Vikram, to the whole team here at USIP, and especially to our friends and partners in the Diplomatic Corps uh, who are with us today. It's really wonderful to have this occasion uh, to talk through and to celebrate the two-year anniversary of the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, if you are me or if you're Camille Dawson, uh, anniversaries of the Indo-Pacific strategy are something that you really like to celebrate, um, but it's great that we have so many friends and partners to do it with us as well. Um, so just to kick us off on kind of where are we with the IPS. Um, I do think it's fair to say that two years into the strategy's publication, of course, just three years into uh, the first term of the Biden-Harris administration, we have made some significant gains through this strategy. Um, and you can see that because we, in that strategy, laid out our homework for you to be graded. Um, if you take a look back at the strategy, you'll see that we had within it an action plan of things that we intended to get done um, during the first 
first many months of the strategy's implementation. And if you give us a grade against that action plan, we are doing pretty darn well. Uh, just to name a few things um, that we've uh, been able to check off the list in a relatively short amount of time. Um, you know, we have elevated our uh, quad to the leaders level in a really path-breaking new grouping in the Indo-Pacific um, that brings India um, into the fold with some of our closest partners um, and allows us all to lead alongside one another. We've launched the AUKUS partnership, again, another completely innovative defense program alongside AUKUS and the UK. We have seen a historic breakthrough uh, between two of our closest allies in Japan and the ROK that allowed us in turn to be able to host the Camp David Summit, bringing the trilateral relationship between our countries to a truly unprecedented level uh, with an incredible amount of future potential. The United States has re-engaged in the Pacific Islands and started to make good on its pledge to really return there, um, making our presence felt once again in a really meaningful uh, and important way, although lots more to do. We've reinvested and re reinvigorated our ties with ASEAN while at the same time taking our alliances and partnerships with the Philippines and Vietnam to new heights. And that's just to name a few of the items that were on that checklist. There's many more that I know we'll talk about um, over the course of our discussion today. But in many ways, um, the watchword of the Indo-Pacific strategy was and continues to be a term that Lise referred to in her opening remarks. And that is the idea of building collective capacity. The theory of the case of the IPS uh, is not that the United States alone had the power to transform the region or alone to accomplish our objectives that are laid out in that strategy, but rather that by reinvesting in and modernizing our alliances and partnerships, by reinvigorating our ties to key regional institutions, and by promoting cross-pollination between the Indo-Pacific and other regions, we would generate more capacity to bring about a region that is free and open, connected, resilient, prosperous, and secure. Um, and I think thus far the strategy has paid dividends. Um, now, in some ways, the strategy has actually done quite a bit better than those of us who got to work on it might even have reasonably expected. Um, and that, of course, you know, refers to all four of us uh, up on this stage today. And part of the reason for that is because I think that this affirmative vision that we lay out in the IPS not only correctly identified this pathway of building collective capacity to achieve shared uh, objectives, but presented an affirmative vision that allowed a wide range of partners to buy into it. Um, so while, of course, the United States has a clear set of goals in the region that we lay out in the strategy and that we continue to work towards every day, we laid out a strategy and have implemented a strategy that is easy enough for a wide range of partners to see themselves in and to see their objectives in. Um, it makes it possible for partners, whether they're in Northeast Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia, or the Pacific Islands, to recognize lines of effort that are meaningful to them um, and to hopefully want to be a part of it. Um, and that's why I think we've seen some of this progress accelerate uh, faster than we might have hoped. Uh, finally, um, one point that I just want to mention uh, before turning the floor over to my colleague Don Liu is to note, and, and this is uh, less as a policymaker and more as a lapsed academic, with my former academics hat on, that it actually is a remarkable thing to be talking about the continued successes of a government strategy more than two years after its publication, three years after its drafting. I had the privilege of working with this team since the presidential transition, um, and it is actually a pretty amazing thing to remark that many of the ideas of how we would reinvigorate our role in the Indo-Pacific, how we would invest in the region, were the same ideas that we talked about during that period that were penned into the Indo-Pacific strategy, into its implementation 
implementation guidance and continue to guide our work to this day. Um, so that really is a reflection of a genuine strategic vision that I think was commonly held by this interagency, as well as commonly held amongst the United States and so many of our partners in the region. That's great. Thank you. Um, Don, how are we how, how are we doing in South Asia and how is South Asia looking at our at our progress and partnership and how it's changed? So if folks haven't figured it out, there's a line right here that divides <laughs> South Asia from East Asia. Uh, we put the Indo in Indo-Pacific, we like to say. Um, uh, let me first just thank Lise for hosting all of us today. It's wonderful to see so many of the ambassadors from this region here mixed together with so many of the great academic minds uh, who work on South Asia and East Asia. Um, I'm going to take this in a little different direction. Uh, rather than give you a list of accomplishments, I wanted to tell you a story. And uh, Americans love a comeback story. And so in the region I work on, there is no greater comeback story than the story of Sri Lanka. If, if you will go back with me in time a year and a half, you will remember a country in crisis. You'll remember mass riots in the streets. You'll remember uh, lines for petrol and for food snaking around the corners. Uh, you'll remember the seizing of the president's home, protesters swimming in his swimming pool, protesters cooking food in his kitchen. If you've been to Sri Lanka lately, it's a very different place. The currency is stable, food and fuel prices are stable, they've gotten uh, reassurances on their debt restructuring, and the IMF uh, money is flowing. How did they do that? That's the question I wanted to explore with us a little today. The answer I would offer is they did it with a little help from friends. And this Indo-Pacific strategy um, is based on the premise that the United States and like-minded partners are going to try to offer a better proposition. Let me explain that in the context of Sri Lanka. In the beginning, Sri Lanka really needed humanitarian assistance. What we saw was countries like India coming forth with concessional loans that allowed um, Sri Lanka to continue to bring in vital supplies of food and fuel during the most difficult times. Our USAID during those same days provided hundreds of millions of dollars in um, agricultural inputs, uh, fertilizers and seeds so farmers could grow their own crops. On the debt side, if you follow Sri Lanka at all, you know they have a really heavy debt burden. The creditor committee, led by Japan, France, and India, negotiated for months to find a formula to allow Sri Lanka to restructure its debt in a sustainable way. And that formula put pressure on the Chinese to go along with those uh, debt reassurances. That opened up IMF funding and the changes that you see in the economy today. And Vikram mentioned this $553 million loan from the U.S. Development Finance Corporation just announced in November. That was a loan not to a government. It was a loan to the Colombo Port West Container Terminal. Uh, that's a private sector project that's going to make money for the Sri Lankan people. It's not a loan that balloons out bilateral debt. It's, a, it's an actual profitable project that's really based on private sector um, investment that we are supporting as well. Lastly, I would say part of what Sri Lanka really needs is all of us to be there to help su support its sovereignty. One of the ways that we are doing that from the US government is by providing patrol boats to the Sri Lankan um, military. And we are also 
um, this year set to deliver a King Air aircraft that will help Sri Lanka to patrol its coastal waters. Lastly, on security, um, through Mira's work and others, we have uh, this Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative, which is a complicated way of saying we're going to provide free, near real-time commercial satellite data to countries around this broader region, uh, including in South Asia. And in South Asia, we're doing it through um, the Indo-Pacific Information Sharing Center that the Indians have created. This is going to be transformative. This will help countries to figure out how you defend yourself against piracy, against drug trafficking, against illegal fishing. So uh, just to circle back to where I started, uh, Sri Lanka has made this amazing sort of historic comeback. How did it do it? It did it with a little help from all of us. Thanks. That's great. And I think that collaborative element and all of the initiatives that we've seen reinforce that. And I guess that, and then, the question is, is it a better proposition? I often like look at the five pillars of the strategy. The one that is that stands out, of course, is free and open, because that's the one that really doesn't happen without the United States and its democratic allies and partners being, you know, driving something. Um, and that might be the part of it that's a better proposition for the for the for the countries in the region. Agreed. Camille, let's uh, let's let's turn to across that that line. <laughs> We're not going to call it a line of actual control. We're just going to no, call it a no, line between your chairs. You're the friendship bridge. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, well, I also want to join in, in thanking USIP for hosting us and for all of our friends from the diplomatic community and the think tank and academic community for being here today. Uh, and as Mira noted, I like to take every opportunity to celebrate uh, anniversaries of the Indo-Pacific strategy or, or really any opportunity that I can to, to speak about it because I really do believe it is, uh, it is the, the guiding light. It is our roadmap for what we are trying to achieve in the region. And as Mira highlighted, really the key principle is that the challenges facing the region are so significant that no one country can address all of those problems or challenges alone. But when we come together and pool our collective capabilities and resources, then we start to get at really building that collective capacity to address the challenges of today and also tomorrow. Uh, so that is really what we are focused on. And uh, as we marked the two-year anniversary of the release of the strategy on this past Sunday, uh, a number of agencies across the U.S. government released fact sheets outlining particular accomplishments uh, of the Indo-Pacific strategy. So we have a very lengthy State Department fact sheet, which I uh, commend to you all, but I'll mention just a, a very small number of highlights from the, the fact sheet that we put out. Uh, the first thing um, that I want to note is that uh, we have really focused on building up our diplomatic representation in the region. We know that being present physically is a huge driver of what we can achieve in the region. So we have expanded our staffing around the region 
and we have opened new embassies uh, in the Solomon Islands, in Tonga, not in my region, but crossing the friendship divide here, I will, <laughs> I will mention in the Maldives as well. Uh, and we look forward to opening a new embassy in Vanuatu in 2024. And we are in the process of discussions with the government of Kiribati uh, about our intent uh, to open an embassy there as well. Um, Mira mentioned the, the quad and are elevating the quad. As uh, many of you know, the quad has uh, both a leaders level track and a ministerial level track. Uh, and we cooperate closely across those, uh, those various tracks and all of the working groups. Uh, but at the ministerial level, we have held six ministerials. Uh, just in recent years and have delivered through those discussions and the ongoing work of our experts uh, a number of key deliverables to the region including humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, a framework for how we will cooperate in delivering that in a time of disaster. Uh, Don noted uh, our work in the maritime domain awareness space. We have launched a number of programs in the education uh, or um, fellowship space and, and many others uh, that are demonstrating the way in which the Quad is able to deliver really tangible benefits that match the priorities as outlined by the region itself. Um, We've also launched partners in the Blue Pacific uh, in order to support the priorities identified by the Pacific Island countries in their own 2050 uh, outlook for the Blue Pacific. Uh, and, and then I want to note that we often hear uh, that the region sees the United States as a strong, security partner, and I'm sure that Eli will focus on that element, and that is absolutely true. Uh, but we are also an indispensable partner for the region in economics, in people-to-people -people ties, and in our diplomatic relationships. And on the economic sphere, I want to highlight just a couple of things. Um, the, the size of the economy of the Indo-Pacific region was already mentioned, but sitting here in the United States, it's also important for us to reflect on what that means to the American public. We generate a tremendous amount of economic benefit from our relationship to the region. Uh, we, in um, a document we just put out earlier this week noted that uh, exports from the U.S. to the region and investments from the region to the United States generate four million jobs for Americans. Uh, and that's a, a really important thing to keep in mind. Um, also, we uh, have just done some work through an organization called Aid Data, and they put out an interesting study that shows uh, that uh, over the past 10 years, 
the sum of U.S. investment in the region, including uh, not only government uh, investment in the region, but private sector, philanthropic sector, uh, has grown 18%. And uh, there has been a shift from the U.S. as an aid provider to an investment partner. And I think that's a notable uh, trend as well. And then lastly, I just wanted to note um, as a key highlight uh, of our recent efforts uh, in the Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, we hosted, of course, APEC in 2023. And throughout the course of the year, held over 400 expert level meetings, 10 ministerials, uh, and uh, delivered uh, a number of really significant uh, agreements and benefits that um, bring tangible result to the region as a whole. So I'll stop there. Great. Thanks so much. Okay. Eli, you go back across the divide because you have to secure and help our partners uh, maintain peace and stability across this vast and complicated territory. So talk to us about the defense vision, what we've accomplished. I mean, uh, there's some really obvious greatest hits like AUKUS and other, and other things, but just give us, give us your take on where, where things stand um, in terms of preserving the peace and, and uh, enhancing deterrence and things of that nature. Yeah, well, thanks Vikram, and, and I'll just add, it's really wonderful to be here. I'm glad you use that word vision, because what, what we talk about, what Secretary Austin talks about, is a shared vision that we have with our allies and partners. I think the degree of strategic alignment between the United States and our major allies and partners, uh, really throughout the Indo-Pacific, is unprecedented, and that is what, what has enabled so much of our success here. Uh, part of the shorthand that we use when we talk about uh, what we're doing in the region is that we are aiming to be, and I think we have achieved, uh, being more capable, being more forward, and being more together. Um, in terms of being more capable, of course, we are making uh, really significant investments in terms of our own military, but also taking a lot of steps to support ally and partner capabilities really throughout the region. Uh, we've been able to work closely with the Japanese on their historic decision to acquire counter-strike capabilities. Vikram, as you know, we've been working very intensely uh, with the Indian government on uh, their efforts to deepen their, their indigenous uh, defense industrial base through some really exciting co-production, co-development opportunities and in areas, areas such as uh, jet fighter engines uh, and armored vehicles. Um, so we're doing a lot more in terms of bringing more uh, capability and capacity uh, to the region with our allies and partners. We're also more forward uh, to Mira's point, this is something not only that we talked about uh, during the transition, this is something uh, academics and think tank experts have been writing about literally for decades about how we need a more mobile, distributed, resilient uh, force posture in the Indo-Pacific. And that is something we have made enormous strides on down from uh, through Japan, the Philippines, uh, Australia, uh, Papua New Guinea and elsewhere, 2023 stood as the most transformative year in our regional force posture in a generation. Uh, and it, there's uh, more to come uh, in the years ahead. Uh, and then finally, uh, in terms of doing more together, uh, this is something I hope we'll get into uh, in the conversation. Uh, Camille mentioned the Quad, uh, Mira mentioned the uh, Camp David Summit. We have been doing a lot more with uh, 
collections of our allies and partners in really new and innovative ways. Uh, just in, to take one example, uh, in terms of the uh, U.S.-Japan ROK trilateral relationship, historic summit last year, tasked the Defense Department with a few go-do's uh, in terms of uh, developing a new effort to link together uh, early warning missile data uh, between our three countries, and we delivered that before the end of 2023. Another go-do from our leaders was to develop a multi-year exercise plan trilaterally uh, to make our trilateral exercises and activities more frequent and more regular, and we achieved that by the end of 2023, too. So a lot of really important ways that we're starting to work uh, in new ways with our allies and partners, but there's a lot more to do. And so, you know, looking ahead, uh, on something issues like AUKUS, which was mentioned, we're going to have to deliver uh, on AUKUS in 2024, and that's very high on the priority list. We're going to have to keep delivering on the force posture front. Again, last year was a historic year, but uh, the job's uh, not done. Uh, and we're going to have to find a path forward uh, with Congress to get uh, COFA funded this year as well. So uh, lots of successes to talk about, but uh, we got to roll up our sleeves and keep at it this year. You, you just you mentioned COFA at the end. We have a very knowledgeable audience. We have a broadcast uh, uh, out on the Internet, so Compact and Free Association. This is the relationship we have with Key Pacific Island Partners that's, uh, that's very unique. Do you want to just, since you mentioned it, do you want to just go a little bit deeper on where COFA stands and why that matters and how it ties into the president doing two Pacific Island summits and all the upgrading of relations, opening of embassies in the in the Pacific and out with the Pacific Islands? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to the COFA piece in particular and, and maybe kick it uh, back to State Department and NSC colleagues to talk about the whole of government approach because DOD uh, really only has a, a particular role as it relates to the Pacific Islands. But look, I'll say this. Uh, Securing COFA funding is one of the most important things that the administration can do this year in terms of uh, our Indo-Pacific strategy. This is really a strategic territory in terms of uh, having assured access in the region. Uh, this is an area where State Department colleagues have uh, successfully negotiated a new 20-year agreement. Uh, it's also the fact that citizens in the COFA uh, territories uh, are participating in the U.S. military at very high rates. Uh, and so look, this is something that matters. It's something where there is strong bipartisan support. Uh, this is an opportunity for Congress in the administration to work together this year, uh, and we just have to get it done. I just want to flag thank you to Ambassador Joe Yoon, USIP, uh, a uh, forever present USIP uh, uh, a person and a, great, and a great diplomat who negotiated the, the compacts. Um, do any of the rest of you want to touch on Pacific Islands and compacts? You can bounce from COFA to broader Pacific Islands. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. And, and we're just, you know, violent agreement with everything Eli said. Getting COFA funded um, is really second to none in terms of our uh, strategic tasks that we have to take on this year. And it just simply must be done. Uh, COFA and the COFAs are, um, you know, a traditional set of relationships that are particularly strong for the United States and the Pacific Islands. Uh, they represent, um, you know, some really deep um, and continuing historical ties. And the reinvestment in COFA is really a reinvestment in those ties and in our 
our role in the region. Uh, but of course, the United States over the course of the last few years has recommitted to the whole of the Pacific Islands region um, in a number of new and important ways. Um, as Vikram mentioned, uh, President Biden has hosted not one but two uh, historic Pacific Island leaders summits um, in just the last couple of years. Uh, the last one was known as a Pacific Island Forum Summit because the members of the Pacific Island Forum were all in attendance. Um, but what these summits are designed to show, and I think have shown, is the fact that the United States is not just saying that we're back in the Pacific Islands, but that we're actually doing it. Um, and at each one of these summits, we have rolled out a historic set of deliverables ranging from new forms of climate assistance uh, to new types of development projects uh, to really exciting infrastructure projects, including uh, submarine cable projects and new marine wharf projects um, that we're going to be undertaking alongside um, some of our closest allies, including in particular Australia, um, where we're tightly partnered as well as with New Zealand. Um, and the purpose, of course, of all of these projects is to show, as Don alluded to earlier, that the United States and our closest friends have real alternatives to offer. We are a lot more than just talk when we say that we're back. We are able to show you that we can use our diplomatic tools, our foreign assistance tools, uh, the whole toolkit to bring outcomes to the people of the Pacific Islands that are better, that are higher standards, that are more dependable uh, than what you can get anywhere else. Uh, so delivering on all of those summit pledges really matters, and that is work that we are continuing to implement to this day. Uh, institutionalizing our Pacific partnerships, you know, including Partners of the Blue Pacific, which is a relatively newer grouping, really, really matters. Keeping up the energy to continue sending our highest level leadership to the Pacific Islands and to hosting them here at home really matters. And of course, um, most of all, I would agree that funding the COFAs this year really matters. Great. I'll add just a few points because I um, agree 100% with everything that Mira and Eli have said already. Um, so we'll repeat those same points. Uh, but we'll just add that um, as uh, the Indo-Pacific strategy was being developed, and for those who do, don't know, Mira Rapp Hooper was doing the developing uh, at the time, and as she was engaging in conversations, which I was fortunate to be a part of, with many of our uh, diplomatic partners, uh, she was asking the question, what, what do you need? from the United States? What do you want to see from the United States in our strategy? And from our Pacific Island friends, there were many similar threads. Um, and some of those Mira has already touched on in terms of climate resilience, um, connectivity. Um, but there were a few things uh, that were, were very specific and addressed by uh, certain U.S. government agencies, two of whom are not here, so I want to give a shout out to them. Uh, and the first is Peace Corps. Um, so the desire for additional educational opportunities. Uh, and time and again, we heard about the importance of the Peace Corps and what that has meant to our friends in the Pacific Islands over the years. Uh, and the Peace Corps has really been doing tremendous work uh, to get back to the Pacific Islands following COVID uh, and to really uh, delivering on, um, on that uh, desire for enhanced educational opportunities and, and building up those people to people ties. 
On a similar note, we heard uh, that there is a desire for additional opportunities for young people in the Pacific Islands to develop leadership skills and specific skill sets that are applicable to uh, developing the local economy. So through the State Department's uh, Young Pacific Leaders Program, we have expanded the offerings that we can provide to people across uh, the Pacific Islands, Australia and New Zealand to not only develop their own uh, leadership skills, but also to develop networks with one another uh, that will help to ensure uh, a connected future uh, in Oceania. Um, and then lastly, I want to mention um, the Coast Guard and what we heard uh, from our Pacific Island friends about um, the, the very positive uh, sentiment they have towards the Coast Guard and the training uh, and capacity building that the Coast Guard has offered and uh, has committed to offering more of in the future. Uh, and I think that's uh, a critically important element of enabling um, the capacity of Pacific Island nations to uh, be able to better uh, patrol their own waters and ensure uh, their economic viability in the waters. That's great. So a, sub a subtext here, we haven't gotten very explicit about it. We've talked a little bit about um, you know, an alternative positive vision. We've talked a little bit about um, challenges and you know, why we're maritime domain awareness, et cetera. What I'd like you all to hit on is I mean, clearly there's a big appetite in the region for the U.S. to be heavily involved, to be a security partner and more than a security partner. Um, it, that obviously is driven by, um, in part, by sense of insecurity or, or threat or challenge. So if it's climate, it's driven by, uh, you know, for the Pacific Islands in particular and Maldives and places that are really the forefront of the impact, the br bearing the brunt of climate change, it's that kind of a threat. But for a lot, it's... Um, it's about these uh, long-growing territorial disputes. And while we all talk mostly about uh, China-Taiwan gets the most attention, there's territorial disputes all the way around. In fact, on, you know, not just China-India, Pakistan-India, uh, disputes in that, in that area, all potential flashpoints, all areas where we presumably hope our investments are helping to deter bad behavior that could sp spark conflicts, that could spiral into something uh, catastrophic. Um, nuclear powers in many cases uh, in these areas and you know DPRK also would be in that basket so could I ask each of you to just hit on some of the friction points and that piece of it uh, you know and the, the sort of the challenges that they're facing that countries are facing in the region um, and then after that we'll come back around and we'll talk about what cooperation can also look like that goes beyond just the allies and partners but um, who wants to start with friction points in their part of the world? Don, I want you to start because we've been doing the Pacific Islands. We got to save it. You mentioned over. a couple in the region I work in: the India-China border conflict, the you know the historic, deep-seated conflict between India and Pakistan. But the one I actually spend a lot of time on is thinking about Bangladesh and the Rohingya refugees who are there and the effects of instability in uh, Burma and what it means for the region and. Um, I see our, uh, the Bangladeshi ambassador to the United States here. We, we spent a lot of time working with Bangladesh to try to be supportive of the generosity Bangladesh has shown to over a million people who have been 
uh, living now in Bangladesh for years. I had a chance to visit the, um, the Cox's Bazaar refugee camp. It's the biggest refugee camp in the world. And uh, to see, the, again, the tremendous generosity, but also the willingness of the international community to work together to find a solution uh, to house these refugees until it's safe enough to go back. I, I'm not an expert in Burma. Uh, I have colleagues here who are. The situation there does not appear to get, be getting better. And what worries me is that this refugee crisis, the, the security problems that it's creating for Bangladesh and potentially for India as well, could get deeper in the coming days. <laughs> I, I think it's something we all have to watch out for and we have to be enabling our partners in the region, in this case Bangladesh and India, to be able to cope with those uh, stresses without it boiling over into instability in their countries as well. And indeed, India is locking down their traditionally porous yeah. open border uh, uh, with Myanmar. Similar flashpoint drivers you know, are upgrading of the alliance with the Philippines, something I've mm. worked on a long time ago uh, and has seen sort of uh, a rapid um, acceleration um, is also in the face of them having real real live on the water confrontations and tensions um, so I know Eli if you want to take that and then uh, and then um, Camille also yeah I'd be happy we can talk about the Philippines and that I think is, is an important story of the uh, of the administration and, and an area where Secretary Austin himself has been really invested I think as I was thinking about your prompt there, Vikram, though. I think one of the things uh, that I have learned in this business working with and for great thinkers like Patrick Cronin and others is, you know, we have these, we are a global power. We have a global military. You know, we take on global responsibilities. We have grand regional visions. Um, our allies and partners have more particular challenges that they're dealing with that are all different from each other. And so, yes, there is a shared vision about what they want uh, the region to look like. But when we are working with them on their partnerships, they are thinking through what are their particular challenges. And for us to really meet them where they are in that regard, I think, has been part of the uh, uh, elements of our success here. And we see patterns, whether it's from India to the Philippines to Australia to Japan, Vietnam and others, what we see are partners who in the first instance, again, are investing in themselves and how are we enabling them to do that in a way where they are able, where they are acquiring capabilities, number one, that they can afford, number two, that actually meet the type of challenges uh, that they're facing. Um, they are also investing in their partnerships with the United States. So again, almost across the board, our bilateral relationships are stronger than they have ever been because we are working with countries, again, whether it's India or Australia in their new guided munitions effort, whether it's with the Philippines on some of their maritime security issues, whether it's Japan uh, on counter-strike. We're working with them uh, within the alliance on the particular security challenges that they're facing. Uh, and then they're doing more with each other. And so we're thinking about how are we bringing together partners in new and interesting ways to help manage some of these issues. So in the instance of the Philippines, uh, we have been working to build uh, opportunities to bring together more allies and partners in new ways to manage issues, for instance, associated with the South China Sea. So for the first time ever at the Shangri-La Dialogue last year, the ministers of defense of Australia, Japan, the Philippines, and the United States uh, all met in person for the first time. Mira, I'm sure, can talk about some of the trilateral work between the Philippines, Japan, uh, and the United States that the White House has been leading. 
Um, and that is leading now not only to uh, meetings and dialogues, to act, but to actual operational activity. So I think that whether it's mini-lateralism, networking, lattice work that you describe, that's a really, really important trend. Again, we ought to talk about that uh, in a little more detail. But as we think about how you tailor uh, your defense approach to these sub-regions and to particular countries, again, really meeting them where they are is vitally important. That's great. Camille, anything to add? Or? Um, so I think, you know, Burma and Philippines and South China Sea have been touched on a bit already. Um, and you did mention uh, briefly in the question the, the DPRK. I think it's an important uh, issue to touch upon. Um, not only does the DPRK continue uh, a large number of uh, unlawful missile launches and the development of its WMD program, but we are also seeing the, the very concerning uh, development of a strong relationship between the DPRK and Russia. Uh, and I think that's something that all of us in the international community should be watching closely uh, and that we should be concerned about. And, you know, we have certainly from the U.S. government called on others in the international community to speak out with a unified voice um, and to ensure that we are using every possible channel to, uh, to get that message through clearly to both uh, the DPRK and Russian governments. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting development. Obviously, the DPRK has been pretty assertive. There's a lot of concern here. We've been writing on it at USIP about, um, you know, the increasing feeling of instability. I wonder how you guys see, maybe Mira, you can answer this, that Russia DPRK nexus that's growing. You know, a lot of people view it, it's kind of sad that Russia is dependent on Iran, DPRK and, and China now for supplying its war machine. But of course, Russia has a lot to offer back, including technology and other and other things that can enhance the capabilities of those other of those, of those countries that are you know fundamentally hostile um, to our allies and partners um, and overall stability. Um, so I'm just I, I would love Mira really quickly your just take on things with DPRK. Obviously, Yoon administration's heading to an election, a national assembly election um, shortly, um, but tensions do seem high, and uh, and be curious what you guys are thinking there. Yeah, happy to speak to that, Vikram. Look, um, as Camille says, the growing relationship between DPRK and Russia is deeply worrisome. Um, you know, I think uh, it has been made public, we have made public um, some of the cooperation, um, certainly, that Russia is getting from the DPRK, but exactly as you indicate, Russia has a lot to offer back um, to Pyongyang, and this relationship is growing fast enough um, that we have to be worried about the types of changes that they could support one another in making, um, not just now, but over a period of of years. There are obviously limits to what I can say on this stage, but suffice it to say that I think for many of us on this stage, uh, this growing relationship takes up a lot of our time um, in the office every day. Now, uh, one of the silver linings is that uh, this too has been a catalyst for new forms of cooperation. Mm -hmm. uh, we obviously already had a really strong framework in the Camp David Summit for US uh, ROK Japan collaboration, uh, but out of a National Security Advisors trilat that was held in Seoul in December. Um, we are now much more energetically cooperating across our agencies and departments um, to share information about and seek to combat um, the challenge posed by the DPRK-Russia relationship, and that is really important. There are no 
three partners that more need to be working yeah. together on this challenge. Um, but I will also say that this is one where these lattice works that we've been talking about today um, are really kind of showing their colors. Um, a few years ago, it would have been hard um, to think of some of our European partners being as interested, as focused, as eager to cooperate and stand up um, as our European partners are right now on DPRK-Russia cooperation. Um, but it is very clear um, to many of our NATO partners, to our EU partners, just as it is clear to us that not only um, is this cooperation very dangerous, it is kind of unpredictable in the direction in which it heads. Um, so we've also had some really meaningful engagements uh, with European partners who are eager to draw closer to some of the work that we're doing in other settings as well. Um, of course, as you indicated, we are also concerned about some of the rhetoric um, that we have heard out of Pyongyang, uh, but also believe that, um, you know, as I've indicated, we have uh, what we need uh, to continue to uh, reinforce peace and stability on the peninsula and in the Indo-Pacific writ large. Um, that certainly, um, you know, involves the trilateral cooperation, some of which Eli was speaking about today, really extraordinary new defense steps that we have uh, taken together just since the Camp David summit that are able to uh, demonstrate trilateral uh, deterrence and cooperation, as well as our rock solid uh, alliances with both the ROK and Japan, um, which continue to be forces for peace and stability. Um, and again, we believe uh, we'll be able to provide for them. Yeah, it's great. I mean, look, we just you said it's it's things that would have been hard to imagine. And just a few years ago, the quad at the leaders level with this many engagements, with this depth of cooperation, with practical things happening, with everyone putting in resources, AUKUS, the notion that we would actually make AUKUS happen um, and be pursuing uh, nuclear submarines with uh, conventionally armed nuclear powered submarines with Australia and a bunch of critical technology cooperation. Most of these tech partnerships would all have been things that you wouldn't really have imagined. So maybe we could take a minute on the lattice work. Um, maybe, uh, and I would ask, perhaps uh, uh, Eli Mira, maybe give us um, some on on AUKUS and the you know if there's anything else you want to touch on on the core trilateral. We've hit Japan, ROK, uh, US a lot, which is of course the one that I think was most unimaginable to mm -hmm. me from prior experience. But the um, but but where AUKUS is headed and that and then and then Camille and and Don, maybe you guys can hit the quad from both sides of the of the divide there um, and, and what we're achieving with the quad uh, about, you know so maybe Eli to start yeah I'll leave the where is AUKUS headed uh, to the to Mira um, but um, the look I'll say a couple things I think this trend broadly again is something folks have been writing about and talking about for a couple decades now but it's happening now in terms of not only in the US Japan uh, ROK relationship and the quad but really it's a it's a new regional phenomenon that, at least to me, is the most exciting and important trend in the region right now. And I think what we are seeing is the birth of a new regional security architecture that is just in its very early formations, but it's going to be, it's not going to be NATO, it's not going to be a singular counterbalancing coalition, that's not what we're aiming for. It's going to be something that is uniquely built and tailored to the challenges in the region, but it's really exciting and it's really significant. So we've talked about, Camille mentioned obviously Quad and the Indo-Pacific uh, Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative. We've talked about the US ROK, uh, Japan relationship. Um, we've talked about AUKUS. I just mentioned the, uh, this quadrilateral of the US, Japan, Australia, and the Philippines. 
Uh, another very, very important component in, in this, probably the most advanced actually from a defense perspective, is the U.S.-Japan-Australia alliance, or sorry, uh, trilateral uh, relationship, which has been, uh, again, really exciting to watch develop. We've had a series of uh, leader-level meetings, uh, and we have a, a real operational uh, program going forward. But that has been enabled not just by the United States and not just in a hub and spoke way, but by the relationship between Japan and Australia growing so strong. One element of this, just to be specific, is a reciprocal access agreement that those two countries have signed with each other that has enabled new forms of military cooperation. And just last year, for the first time ever, Japanese F-35s uh, visited, deployed to Australia. Later in the year, Australian F-35s deployed to Japan. And then trilaterally, we have agreed and announced that we will be integrating uh, Japanese F-35s into U.S. force posture initiatives in Northern Australia. And what a powerful, from an operational perspective, from a strategic perspective, to be adding to our capability uh, in deterrent in the region. And I think if you think about the, where that could go in the future, uh, and not just between that constellation of countries, but between other networks of allies and partners um, accessing each other's facilities, working together more. Our major exercises in the region, some of our marquee, what were once bilateral exercises, Garuda Shield with Indonesia, now referred to as Super Garuda Shield with uh, over a dozen countries, Balakatan with the Philippines, now uh, a multilateral exercise, uh, Keen Edge with Japan, now with other participating high-end partners. So we're seeing this trend of a really interesting, very dynamic uh, multilateralism. And it's one of the things that gives me real hope that we're going to maintain peace and stability and deterrence in the region. That's great. Do you want to talk future where AUKUS is headed? Sure. I'm happy to say a bit more about AUKUS and then just embroider on some of Eli's great comments um, generally, with, with which I violently agree, no surprise. Um, so on AUKUS, um, where it's headed, uh, towards the optimal pathway that our leaders uh, announced uh, last March uh, when they met in San Diego when it comes to uh, pillar one of the program. Um, that is a major, massive uh, defense industrial undertaking that is going to take us uh, years to get right. and. Um, uh, make no mistake, all three leaders, all three governments are fully committed uh, to getting this right. Um, but this is just an incredible undertaking, both in its vision uh, and in the level of cooperation that is required, demanded, um, and fully expected amongst all three of our governments going forward. Um, so I think there is uh, actually quite a clear vision on paper um, that came out of that ulti uh, optimal pathway for the work that we'll have to do together uh, on the sub portion of AUKUS. Um, but it really does require some massive changes in new patterns of cooperation within the US government, uh, never mind with the UK and Australia. Um, that will uh, certainly be the work of, of many administrations to come uh, beyond this one. Uh, then next, of course, there is a pillar two of AUKUS, right? Um, this is the advanced capabilities work um, that will uh, look at a number of different types of projects, uh, potentially bring in other partners. And this is another place where we're hoping uh, to make good progress in the very near term, uh, because we think that uh, you know without necessarily 
necessarily being a part of Pillar One at all. Uh, we have a broad uh, swath of allies and partners who really have a lot to contribute to some of this very exciting uh, cooperation on advanced capabilities that we'd like to do with the UK on Australia as well. Um, but beyond AUKUS um, and beyond just the sort of acronyms, um, I really do want to foot stomp uh, Eli's point about this emerging as a new form of architecture in the region, this set of overlapping lattice works and coalitions um, where we are kind of fit for purpose and we're pursuing different projects, different deliverables, different types of outcomes and different groupings. Eli mentioned uh, one other that we continue to think is really promising and that we'll continue to work on uh, a good deal this year and beyond and that's the US-Japan-Philippines partnership uh, where our sort of shared vision um, as maritime democracies that think a lot about the East China Sea, the South China Sea and how we can reinforce one another um, has us with an incredible program of work in front of us. Uh, one of the best meetings I've sat in in government uh, over the course of the last three years was the first trilateral meeting amongst our three countries' national security advisors because the program of work that just flowed out from that um, really was the stuff of many years. Um, so that's another grouping that I expect will continue. Um, but I do want to emphasize one point that I made earlier, Vikram, and that we should uh, talk about a little more, and that is the fact that institutionalization of some of these efforts is not guaranteed, right? No. When we talk about these different groupings of partners, we have a lot of work that we have to continue to do as a U.S. government and with our partners to ensure that the structures we're building really do stand the test of time. Um, part of that is for very good reason. Uh, we are uh, mostly in these collections working uh, with other democracies, and we all expect political change to be part of the fabric of how we operate. Uh, but we need to do the work both within our bureaucracies and with one another to create the expectations the protocols, the procedures, um, to ensure that what is this incredibly strong group of partnerships looks just as strong, if not much stronger, five or seven years from now. And I think we have really begun the business of doing that work, but certainly uh, for my team, and I know for many of the, the teams of uh, my friends on stage, this is a lot of where we're focusing our attention uh, in year four of this administration, making sure that many of these big groupings that we have built are really built to last. Yeah, that's a really important point because it has to things can be initiatives and then they fade away when the proponents of those initiatives move from the scene and go to go to their next thing. So hopefully you losing uh, Kurt Campbell from the White House and you guys you gaining gain your gain Kurt of Campbell. Kurt Campbell gain. Uh, gain. Uh, <laughs> yeah, is, a, is a part of institutionalization within the State Department for um, for a lot of these uh, for a lot of these these um, efforts and activities. So okay, let me let me like We've managed to go this long without uh, mentioning China outright. What I want to do is say all of these all of these things we've just talked about, which are clearly embraced by the allies and partners who are partnering with us on them, are portrayed, of course, by the Chinese in a very different light as a con as containing China, as directed against China, as aggressive towards China. And now, to me, the thing that makes it self-evident that that's not the case is that all of these other countries are so eagerly participating with us on these things. These would not be things the region was excited about if it was just about the U.S. trying to, you know, pile on and bully and constrain um, China. But one of the things we've been working on here, actually, with the Philippines has been just sort of Chinese misinformation, disinformation, the the and the and the sort of this sort of relentless ability to portray a lot of this as militarization, as this is even as China is actually building military outposts on disputed territories, or it is actually uh, you know uh, sparking 
actual combat with uh, the, the Indians on, a dis on their disputed border, you know, even though that's what's happening, um, there is this sort of really difficult information space that all of this plays out in. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I think I can't go down the line because I think you all have a piece of this. You all see this or everywhere you work. But how, you know, you can take the, the, the China's, how China portrays this or how we with friends and partners are managing this new, um, this new world of sort of uh, rapid AI propelled sometimes, social media propelled, whatever you want to take on, but like the, the information space in which, we, in which we're off operating and how, how we're perceived beyond the elites and government officials and business leaders that you're partnering with to run these things, how, you're, how we're perceived more broadly. I'm happy to go first, but I will note before I do that Camille is our real public diplomacy and disinformation and misinformation expert, so I'm going to save the firepower for her. Um, look, uh, when it comes to uh, the way that the PRC may choose to message U.S. or other partner initiatives, I think we have found that staying focused on this affirmative vision um, really is the best defense. Um, it's not really helpful to engage that narrative all that much, um, mostly and above all else because we are confident that that's not what this is about, right? The objectives laid out in the Indo-Pacific strategy um, in that public document are the United States objectives in the Indo-Pacific. There um, you know, is an implementation guidance that the US government uses to implement that strategy. And in the implementation guidance, those same five objectives are our objectives and our same lines of effort are fleshed out. Truly and deeply, what we are seeking to do is to maintain a region that is free, open, connected, prosperous, resilient, and secure. And by keeping ourselves focused on that positive framing and doing all the great work we're talking about here today, but not making it responsive to the way that the PRC is framing things and not framing it as though it is a direct response to what the PRC may be doing, we make it easier for others to join us and again to take the pieces of this that work for them. Um, and I think that it also allows us as a US government to remain focused on this genuinely positive work that we are doing to make our partners feel like they are stronger, more capable, um, and able to contribute to those same regional objectives. Um, so above all, I think that affirmative vision is, is our inoculation. Can I take Amira's affirmative vision and put it in a country context? Yeah. So two weeks ago, I was in the Maldives, one of the most beautiful places in the world. I have kids who are teenagers. They are not usually jealous of my travels. They were very jealous that I got to go to the Maldives. It's a place where China, the United States, India, lots of countries are com competing for influence. The way we will prevail is by offering a better proposition. And what I said to the government of the Maldives is, look, we want you to have good relations with all of your partners, including China and India. But my view is China will be a good partner when there's actual genuine co competition. If there isn't competition, what we have seen over and over again is the Chinese offering unsustainable debt for unprofitable projects. And in, in the Maldives, you know, there are some really serious sectors that we all have to step up on to, to help that country to be successful and to thrive. Um, this debt issue is serious for the Maldives, as it is for many countries uh, around the Indo-Pacific. 
in 2026, if the Maldives doesn't get debt restructuring, they will owe more than $1.3 billion in debt payments. That's more than the budget of the government every year. It's a huge amount of money. In our opinion, what they really need are investments into sustainable, profitable, private sector-led investments. And when you go to the Maldives, you can see there's so much potential there. You know, tourism is everywhere. And, and you could imagine all the profitable things you can invest in. We are in the process of negotiating with Maldives on an investment agreement that would allow the U.S. Development Finance Corporation to offer this sort of funding. What you may also know about the Maldives is it's a chain of 1,200 islands encompassing territorial waters of 53,000 kilometers. That's roughly the size of France. It's a massive country. I, you think of the Maldives as tiny. It's actually enormous in terms of the need for defense. How do you possibly protect the sovereignty of a gigantic part of the Indian Ocean? You do that with technology. You do that with training. You do that with equipment. And I think it's on all of us to see how we can support the Maldives. I mentioned this effort that Mira and others have put together to provide real-time commercial satellite data. That's part of the puzzle. We have recently committed four patrol boats to the Maldivian Navy. We are in discussions about aircraft. They're going to need all that and more to protect this territory. The last thing that's very obvious when you visit the Maldives is it's an island chain that's sinking. That all of the climate change activities that the world has been responsible for are having a really dramatic effect in this island chain. And it's, it's for all of us to recommit to the goals that we have of a clean energy transition to prevent the worst outcomes, but also to support countries like the Maldives, who if we do not provide financing and technology, are just going to vanish from the planet. The, their islands are built right at sea level. If sea level goes up just a small amount, they will be submerged underwater. We, we need to protect that. And, and the United States is committed to this. We need to commit uh, as a group of friendly nations. Uh, so as, as Mira noted, uh, when we look at the challenge of countering disinformation, misinformation, or foreign information manipulation and interference, uh, as some call it, um, there are many approaches uh, that can be taken, but uh, we have really done extensive research and uh, that in every way we look at it comes back to the same key point, which is that the most effective tool to address the disinformation or misinformation is fact-based information that lays out uh, an affirmative vision. So from the United States perspective, we know that we are best served by uh, identifying what disinformation narratives exist so that we are able to put out the information about what the United States and our partners and allies are doing. Uh, and whenever possible, it is best if we can identify specific actions that we are taking and how that is addressing a challenge uh, that is facing the region. So we work hard 
to do that uh, both within the U.S. government and increasingly in alignment with partners and allies. We are working uh, together with our partners in the Quad uh, to identify narratives and other uh, issues of concern under the foreign information and manipulation uh, stream of things. We know that there is a narrative that is pushed out by the PRC, Russia and others uh, that identifies the Quad, AUKUS and the Indo-Pacific strategy as seeking to undermine uh, the PRC and others. Uh, and when we see these narratives, we know, again, that um, our best offense is to outline what we are doing through the Quad AUKUS, the Indo-Pacific strategy, our bilateral, minilateral, and multilateral relationships. We have been working um, in uh, increasingly coordinated fashion to share uh, best practices in, in countering foreign information manipulation. Uh, just recently, we were very pleased to sign memoranda of cooperation with both uh, with the ROK and separately with Japan uh, to uh, shore up our uh, coordinated work in this manner. Uh, and we know also that in order to defeat these false narratives, that we are best served by messages uh, that are coordinated, sustained, and tailored to the local audience so that we are speaking in a way that resonates with the audience themselves. Can I ask you about speed on messaging? Because mm -hmm. it seems like what's happened a lot with Russian and to a, a large degree Chinese, but certainly with Russian misinformation, it's kind of disaggregated. It's a lot like effective political communicators in democracies where they sort of have their their people who go forth and, and just sort of independently spread things. But then as governments, we coordinate and that is, is that a pro, is that a challenge or how are we meeting that in just the nor in the in the day-to-day -day PD world and what sure. you're focused on yeah I mean there are there are many ways that we are addressing it one of the things that we are doing which we think holds the most promise is seeking to ensure that the information environment itself is more resilient so that uh, media environments, information environments in countries around the Indo-Pacific region have access to independent news content, to uh, training for media outlets, to equipment needed by you know, radio and television stations. Uh, and so we are working uh, to provide that where there is a demonstrated need and interest uh, and doing that in a transparent manner uh, where we are not giving content that outlets are required to use or certain storylines that they are required to use, but rather providing access to independent media content so that journalists media outlets have access to more balanced information. Um, so we do think 
that one of the most critically important things that we can do is to build up that overall resilience. Uh, and we are also working with partners, uh, both within the Indo-Pacific region and beyond, who similarly believe uh, that one of the best investments we can make is in shoring up uh, information environments uh, in, in countries where they are particularly at risk uh, for disinformation. So Eli's not militarizing everything. No, the, look, I, th I think those were all really great points. I think the only uh, thing that I would add from the DOD perspective is that um, these narratives really matter uh, in terms of uh, public support in, uh, out in the region for what we are trying to do. Uh, and that ranges from narratives about the future of the economic order in the region to narratives, Victor, that you said of sort of the United States is the one who's pushing allies and partners when that's so obviously not true in terms of the degree to which we see uh, a real demand signal uh, for American leadership. You know, just on that point, it's worth noting that, uh, that several countries and organizations in the region and in Europe as well have issued their own Indo-Pacific strategies. And guess what? They look a lot like ours in terms of that kind of shared vision. So the idea that somehow this is a, all a U.S. program or a U.S. conception just doesn't bear out in the facts. And I agree. Look, demonstrating uh, the alternative, having the positive vision is really important. But that shared understanding and that resilience of what's occurring in the information environment is really important, too. And we do know that the, the PRC, including the PLA, have been increasingly invested in this space uh, in the last several years. They see it as a central part, not sort of an add-on part of the competition, but a central part of, of the competition. They've been getting more organized. They've been ask, acting uh, with greater intensity. And we ought to identify these narratives and talk about them. And with the other piece of this that is perhaps newer than just old style PRC propaganda are the means through which they're doing it. And we know that too, in terms of how they're manipulating social media, how they're using artificial intelligence, how they're starting to use deep fakes. And where we need to get to is that publics in the region, journalists in the region, experts in the region, and here in the United States, when they see those things, they don't parrot them as if they're fact, whether it's coming from the uh, MFA podium or it's coming out of a, uh, another off a bot on social media, that how that is seen and referred to and reported on is, oh, there is one of the PRC's false narratives. We see them using these particular tactics to try to expound this false information. So I think the positive narrative is absolutely right, but I think we have a little more work to do as a government in terms of exposing both the false narratives uh, and the methods through which the CCP and, the, and Beijing are propagating them. That's great. I, you know, I think everybody in this room by now can say free and open, connected, prosperous, resilient, and secure. Um, there are, those are the pillars. The, five, the 10 of the 10 things, we take through most of them, um, I give us sort of, I give us a pretty high grades across the board. The areas that we haven't really hit on, and it's a little unfair because we don't have our commerce and trade colleagues here, but um, before we turn quickly to audience questions, or maybe as we turn to audience questions, you know, there are clearly some economic investments happening. There's clearly, uh, you know, the DFC is active. We're, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, new activity. Uh, Partners in the Blue Pacific is happening. but. The anchor has was that was announced in sort of the resourcing world and the trade world. Um, one big part was the Indo-Pacific Economic 
framework. So the, the IPEF, um, I think, has had a lot of uptake. It had a lot of and, you know, plank holder membership. Um, but I think the general consensus is it has, um, it has, it has not gotten to where, we'd want, where we've seen some of these other mini-lateral and other initiatives uh, go. And I'll give any of you a chance to just talk about economic and trade cooperation in the region and what that looks like or pivot to questions, and I'm sure that will come up in questions too. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take a crack at that one, uh, Vikram. Uh, look, I think as you indicate, IPEF has generated some real excitement and had real uptake in some really important areas. I think the area where we've seen the most energy and enthusiasm from our partners, where uh, we've gotten quite far at this point, is in our supply chain agreement, um, which is really quite substantial. Uh, and, and major ground covered in pillar three and four of IPEF as well. But there's also no question that we still have quite a bit more work to do. Uh, and we're committed to doing that. We know better than anyone uh, how much the region counts on us as a leading economic partner and wants to see that an innovative new agreement can deliver in innovative and new ways that are really meaningful to their people. Um, so that work absolutely continues. Um, but I would note, as I think um, you did, Vikram, that there are a number of ways in which we are also innovating and uh, helping to generate investment in the region um, that are not captured uh, in any one framework and are really, really important to note. Um, you noted some, you know, big blockbuster DFC projects, which are really important. Uh, for my money, when I talk to our partners in the region um, and hold interagency meetings, probably the agency that is most in demand, um, which may surprise some of you, is USTDA. Um, just an incredible partner um, that is able to conduct on-the-ground work to help some of our partner countries identify projects, conduct feasibility studies, and do that early pipeline work that help them figure out how to make an idea into a reality. Um, if I could sort of plus up or give more energy to one US government agency, it would probably be TDA. Um, and particularly in the Pacific Islands, uh, they've had just incredible impacts. Um, but I'll also point to uh, some of the work that we have been doing in the infrastructure space uh, that really involves partnerships amongst partners, um, including through the lattice works we've been referring to here today. Um, I've had the chance to work on a number of different really exciting submarine cable projects um, since I've been at NSC, a couple of which are partnerships between the US, Japan, and Australia, um, one of which uh, is a partnership currently between the US and Australia but has tons of room for growth and others, um, and doing things like providing reliable, secure sub-cable connectivity to the Pacific Islands is it's hard to be more valuable than that, right? Um, and some of the work that we have been able to do by working together to leverage our private sectors, I do think is genuinely pathbreaking um, and is something that we can sustain and build upon, including by bringing other partners in. That's great. I'm gonna um, open it up, guys. I think we can pull off three or four questions. Please state your name, a short question. If you uh, have one, you can direct it to um, any of our panelists, but. Um, there will be mics uh, brought around to you when you ask. And Peter, I think it's a little hard for me to see people, so. Um, here it comes. Thank you. Peter Lavoy, ExxonMobil. Um, thank you for this great discussion. And, you know, you give a bunch of talented people like you the ball, you're going to score a lot of points. So it's not surprising the Indo Pacific strategy is doing so well. I want to take up your grade challenge, Mira. 
And from a commercial point of view, so I'm with ExxonMobil now, for, but I work with other businesses operating in the region. From a commercial point of view, we would not give the Indo-Pacific strategy an A. We'd maybe give it an A minus or a B plus because you have created a peaceful operating environment, an environment where democracies are thriving. I mean, we had a great election in Indonesia yesterday. And the rule of law is promoted. And the US plays a huge role in promoting that. And we really, the business community appreciates that. And the US government itself provides tremendous assistance to us. Every time we go in to see Dan or Don or anybody there, there's always a tremendous help, not to mention the embassies overseas. Fantastic, and commerce. Where we do have a challenge is, again, on the trade and investment plank. Because we could, if, if the U.S. backed up agreements and infrastructure for higher standard trade and investment, we would have a much more even playing field to compete against countries and companies that are very comfortable operating in a low standard environment. And that would really benefit the people in these, in these regions. So, you all know that, you all get that, you recognize this is a missing link. And then I'll just say one more thing from our sector, the energy sector, I'm gonna have to give you guys a C. Now, we're not always the most popular company, so I recognize that. But the policy, the energy policy overseas of the Biden administration is very inconsistent, um, herky-jerky, and really hard, it's very confusing. And I see, our, we see, an. Um, a future in the region where decarbonizing energy is likely to be controlled by China unless the Biden administration really thinks this through and enables American companies to create a, a really proper decarbonized energy structure in the region. Thank you. You know, we could have gone deep on, on the technology piece where decarbonization would play in and energy. We could have gone deep on the free and open piece actually there's a whole each of these could be their own multi-hour seminar each of the 10 um 10 areas but maybe because you open the door there decarbonization what about cooperating with um india dawn or others in the region who have their own ambitions to to make meet their climate goals um you know i know jeff pyatt was just out there with you in india at the IUF, so maybe we can take take an, take advantage of talking a little bit about how we how the government how the U.S. government is looking at partnering with countries in the region to help them decarbonize or help partner to de help other countries, third countries even. So, if you allow me to start, I'll quote my son who's in college. He says, "C's get degrees." So, <laughs> C is good enough for him. Um, uh, I, 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 this clean energy transition, there is no more important place on the planet than India right now, right? India, um, third largest emitter of greenhouse gases, an economy, economy that is booming, that is on track to become the third largest uh, in the world, and yet all that development of their energy capacity is still before them. And will that be based on coal, or will that be based on renewables? And Prime Minister Modi has set out a, a really ambitious agenda for how it's going to be based on renewables, but he can never get there without the support of the world. Not just you know, some narrow group of partners, but the world working together will have to make this possible. It will have to pool financial resources. It will have to pool technology. We'll have to be much more open and flexible in the way we do business. 
Um, my history with India goes back 30 years. I can remember the beginnings of the Bangalore, Silicon Valley, you know, software engineers on both sides starting to flirt with each other to create something that has really changed the way we live. That, that software revolution touches all of us every day in our lives. There will need to be a revolution on that scale in energy transition with India at its heart for us to make it to all of our goals. Satnalanti. Thank you, uh, Nalanthi, USIP. Uh, my question is about the Indian Ocean segment of the Indo-Pacific. Oh, yeah. The uh, most important segment. <laughs> uh, Friendly bridge, Don. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> how are speakers' views of US interests, approaches to the Indian Ocean, how, how are they evolving in, in the past two years, if, if at all? I mean, one of the real challenges that I see as a government person is the Indian Ocean in government is all cut into pieces, yeah. right? I do a piece of it because I do South Asia. My colleagues who cover Africa do a piece of it. In many parts of the US government, Pakistan is treated as a separate part. So there's like a division between Pakistan and India. It makes the coordination more challenging. Uh, we are coming to grips with that. We are finding ways to work together. Uh, I was just at a conference with other colleagues here, including Camille, um, in Hawaii at Indopaycom, where we brought together colleagues who are working that part of the puzzle from Africa, as well as um, people who are working on it in East Asia and in South Asia. It's a tricky piece of the puzzle, um, in part because we're a big force in the Indian Ocean. China is a much bigger force, right? If you're going to, uh, sorry, not China, India. If you're going to get this right, you need to work with the Indians and make sure what we're doing is consistent with the direction that they're moving in with respect to the Indian Ocean. They are historically the big player. Uh, and so we are having really interesting talks, including talks that will um, launch uh, at the end of this month uh, about Africa, to think about how we're working together, particularly in those littoral states of Africa that border on the Indian Ocean, to make sure we have more commonality in the way that we're approaching the region. I completely agree with uh, just a, a quick additional uh, piece of flair on, on Don's very good answer. Th this seam um, that runs down the Indian Ocean is, is totally vexing. It basically, um, you know, falls through three combatant commands, yeah. right, um, in the U.S. system. But there is a flip side advantage to that, which is that some of our partners elsewhere in the world define the Indo-Pacific differently. And for them, they often include the whole Indian Ocean in their definition of the Indo-Pacific and their Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, so if you talk to friends in the EU or you talk to individual European countries like the French, um, they have a very unified vision for the uh, Indian Ocean as we are increasingly developing, as well as the unified set of capabilities and initiatives that they're bringing to bear on it. So one of the benefits that I think uh, we can continue to pursue through the great coordination we do with our European partners is to work in areas like the Indian Ocean, where some of them may have a very long tradition of working on a set of partnerships um, that either we can build upon um, or where we can deconflict efforts um, and really keep them in the lead. Anything to add on uh, seams? No, I thought that no was a DOD great answer. Um, uh, our office cuts across, uh, at least to out, out to Pakistan, not not further west, and obviously not to Africa. But there are uh, three combatant commands. What's been interesting is to see a country like India 
uh, obviously within the Indo-PACOM area of responsibility, but interested in cooperating more with AFRICOM, potentially mm -hmm. with CENTCOM. And I think from an operational perspective, as Mira said, different partners in different ways are going to be operating in the Indio Indian Ocean with different strengths, whether it's geographic or related to their capabilities, some in the West, some in the East. Um, but it continues to be an area of focus. And I think from an area where there is recognized of increasing importance and from a security perspective as the PLA is working to increase its presence uh, throughout uh, the region, but certainly uh, in the Indian Ocean and in the maritime domain, we see littoral states wanting to respond to that and, and strengthen up their own security. So it's a lot of, lot of interest throughout the region. That's one there. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, short question. How do you see... Say who you are. Uh, Asfandiyar Mir, USIP. Um, how do you see the PRC responding to, this, to the strategy, if at all? Thank you. Camille? To the Indo-Pacific yeah, strategy. Yeah, to the, to the, to the, to the yeah. Well, we certainly see it pop up in a lot of media narratives uh, that they are pushing out. Um, and as I noted, when we see something like that, um, reference to the Indo-Pacific strategy, the Quad, AUKUS, we actually know that we are, you know, that our actions are successful um, because they are raising some level of sentiment on the part of the PRC that they need to, you know, that, that they need to counter it in some way. Um, what we see is that um, the actions that the PRC is taking though I certainly wouldn't expect they are intended to do this, are having the effect of advancing our Indo-Pacific strategy because partners, allies, friends within the region and beyond the region are reacting to the increasing uh, aggression of the PRC around the region and so we see this greater alignment, as Eli mentioned, of Indo-Pacific strategies from countries uh, across many parts of the world. And we see an eagerness to cooperate with uh, and to find means of coordination with the United States, as well as our close partners and allies, uh, to ensure that we actually can advance our Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, so the effect is one that is actually positive for us, though I know that's an unintended effect on the part of the PRC. We can, we can do one more. Who wants to be the last question? Rikita. A question from our online audience, oh, David Brunstrom at Reuters. Uh, so, how does the United States view the possibility of a summit between Japan's Prime Minister Kishida and Kim Jong Un? Is there a concern that motive North Korea might be trying to disrupt trilateralism? That's the last one. Who wants it, Mira? I'm, I think ha you have I'm to happy to take this one. 
Hi, David. First of all, um, I think this uh, I think this question may be responding to a different news article that was uh, published recently, um, not tracking an interest uh, in in uh, that particular summit right now. But what I will say is that uh, engagement with the GPRK is something uh, that if any uh, either the United States or any of its partners uh, wanted to do, had a reason to do, um, we will you know, support uh, and work together and consult with one another. Uh, but again, uh, I think uh, th this is uh, perhaps a reaction to a, a very particular news item. Um, so with that, I just want to say, uh, you, we really could do a seminar. I think I might have lost my microphone at the end there. We really could do a seminar on each of these, um, each of these items. We could do a whole, a whole day. You guys have been able to be put through your paces here and you've earned um, some time at the reception. I hope you can spare a few minutes. Uh, please join me in giving a really warm thank, vote of thanks to our wonderful panel. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.